Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Ian Lee reads from Grant Hall by James Allen McPherson. To learn more from Lee about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Ian Lee. Hello, this is Ian Lee. I'm going to read an essay, an excerpt of an essay called Grand Hall from the essay collection A Region Not Home by James Allen McPherson. It's about a black boy in Atlanta going to the library. During this time, the Atlanta Public Library had just been integrated. And on Saturdays, I would dress in my one suit and walk across the Hunter Street Bridge to Peachtree Street. I would turn left onto Peachtree and walk past Reaches, past the railroad station, past the Dinkler Plaza Hotel, and walk onto a place named Five Points. In this place, five streets came together. On one corner, there was an old Lowe's theater featuring a permanent display of scenes from Gone with the Wind. On the Peachtree Street corner was the majestic Atlanta Public Library. I had never had any unrestricted social access to white people, and so I thought it proper to be at my best. This is why I wore my suit to the library. I just did not know the white customers of the country. Very few black people went into that library in those days, immediately after its official desegregation. But I was almost always there on Sunday mornings. The library allowed people to check out books, records, and paintings. I always borrowed as many as my library card allowed. The attendants were always gracious to me. I always returned the borrowed items on time. During one trip away from the library, in my suit and with some borrowed paintings under my arm, a white man came up behind me on Peachtree Street. He moved quickly to my side, and with his right elbow, he knocked me in the side as hard as he could. He said, Get onto the other side of the street, goddamn nigger. Then he hurried down Peachtree Street in his business suit. I gathered up the paintings, much more angry than hurt. Then I remembered Coach Thomas facing down the arrogant white policeman in the lobby of Grand Hall and decided that I would not take this insult. I followed the man all the way down Peachtree Street until we reached the area of the train station. Then he crossed the street and went into a bar. I followed him as far as the door, looked in, and saw him seated on a stool at the bar in a crowd of white men. A black woman was at the end of the bar washing glasses. I crossed Peachtree Street again and went up to a white policeman who was directing traffic at the station. I said to him, I want to report someone for assault and battery. He's now in that bar across the street. The policeman said he could not leave his post, but would put in a call for someone else to hear my complaint. I crossed Peachtree Street again and waited outside the bar. I waited for an, almost an hour. Finally, a squad car put up, driven by a young white officer. I told him that the man I was charging with assault and battery was inside the bar. The officer looked intently at me, but he did walk with me to the bar door. I pointed to the white man in the business suit. The young officer looked puzzled. 
but he did go into the bar, from which I was happily segregated, and brought out a man. He was drunk, and must have been drunk when he elbowed me. I repeated my facts to the officer and to him. Did you hit him and call him a nigger? The young officer asked. The middle-aged man denied it. Why? He said, "I happen to love Negroes." He went back into the bar and soon came back out with the black woman, the dishwasher. She knows me, he told the officer. Tell him how much I love the colored. He ordered the black woman. Yes, sir, she replied. I know him, she said to the officer. He likes the colors. Yes, sir. The young officer called me aside. If you complain, he told me, you have to go downtown to sign some papers. Let's go. I told him. He went back to the man in the suit and the black dishwasher. Yes, sir. She kept insisting. I knows him. He likes the colors. The officer said that the three of us would have to go into his car, to the police station. Then he took us to his car, and then we sat there, the officer behind the wheel, and the drunk white man and I in the back seat. We sat there, equally arrested. All of my life, I had been passive. I was quiet and withdrawn. I did what my family expected of me. I seldom talked. I tried only to protect those few things that were of great importance to me. People called me shy, strange, a doormat, stoical, a person who could take it. I was all of these things, but I thought of myself as something more. In my private view, some things were. Of greater importance than others, not heeding Jerome Tudas at the order of someone else, refusing to return to the pledge club, because this action would turn my life back over to the athletes, who would become my tormentors again. I had seen that they were Socrates' ideal citizens with a single skill; they were hedgehogs with only one way to exhibit their prowess. I did not want to be a hedgehog, nor was it a matter of civil rights, which was then the new religion in the air. There were always group activities, based on theatrical demonstrations, calculated to attract the attention of the media. I wanted to do something for myself, outside of any group involvement, something private, but also right, according to my own scale of values. And so we continued sitting in that police car, across Peach Street from the train station, while the old Atlanta and the becoming Atlanta, the white middle-aged man in the business suit and the young white policeman, silently anguished over this issue of what Atlanta would become. The officer would not start a police car. He seemed intent on lecturing me on the Byzantine procedures that awaited me once I filed my complaint. I would need a lawyer, bonds, fees, witnesses, court dates. The list went on and on. More likely, he viewed me as an agitator or as someone linked to a protest group who had set up this incident for purposes of publicity. He was torn between his legal duty to help me and his fear that he was being drawn into something beyond his own powers to even perceive or control. As for my assailant, he was then proving himself an unworthy antagonist.
and even an unworthy white man. He put his hand on my shoulders. He patted me. He moaned. He straightened my tie. He apologized. He offered up a lifetime of heartfelt acts towards the colored. The young white officer hated him. This was reflected by his face in the rearview mirror. While his sympathies were with his white compatriot, and with the structure of white supremacy they shared, he was being forced more and more to sympathize with what was becoming for him a tragic distortion of what was supposed to be the best genetic expression of the human race. Never allow a white man to cry in front of you. Afterwards, he will hate you for seeing this show of weakness, and will seek to do you harm. Nine Two Wise Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over eighty years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit nine two y dot org slash help now to donate to support Nine Two Y and our new digital programming. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org/redby.